Hello, wherever you are in the world today, welcome to Beyond the Art in our series, The Stories That Carry Us. I'm your host, Cray Beaumont Flynn, a citizen of the Cherokee Nation and the Delaware Tribe of Indians. In each episode, we will discuss with various Native American artists, influencers, art leaders, and everyone in between their experiences, the communities they serve, and the translation and interpretation of the Native American art world today. Welcome to Beyond the Arts. I'm your host, Cray Beaumont Flynn, and today we have Julie O'Keefe. Julie is a citizen of the Osage Nation and also a curator and product designer. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Our pleasure. First, tell us a little bit, what does a curator do and what do you product design? Well, uh, what I've been doing as far as curating um, currently is something, a large project I'm working for the Muskogee Creek Nation. But um, really, it's about the conversation of the pieces that the pieces of art are having with each other as you're going through. You know, some people talk about having a theme, mm-hmm. you know, but I think of it more as having a story. And so um, I'm working with a lot of contemporary artists at this time and also working with some of what I would call their masters um, that began their art in 1860 at Bacone. And so I've been incorporating the history of that along with moving through time and kind of telling a contemporary story of their migration to the Council Oak area. And um, I have a lot of really fabulous artists, about 50 of them that I'm working with that are really telling these stories of their history and their stories of healing. And so that's really how I'm using curation as a skill to really be able to tell that story for them. Fantastic. So would you say the common thread is just the historical and cultural element that's being continuous from early on to present day? I would. I would. As a matter of fact, I don't think you can have one without the other Mm -hmm. because it's the history that we always live by and we always repeat. And that's part of our life that comes through. And that's repeated in art also because our artists are our storytellers. Correct. You always have to look back to look forward. Correct. You're the curator of exhibits that focus on Native American culture. Can you tell us a bit uh, more about your own creative and curatorial practice, what guides or informs the art you make and curate? Gosh, well, I would have to say when we were just, you mentioned product development. Um, I worked for many years as a product developer, but I kept bringing um, like uh, relationships that I had that may be overseas or certain manufacturers in the United States or fabrics or any kind of um, fringing or um, trim that would go onto uh, a sofa mm. or a piece of furniture. And in 2015, I had really been working closely with Marriott Hotel and Sunrise Assisted Living and Neiman Marcus, producing product for them. And a lot of times it would be a piece that maybe they found at the Bon Marche in France and then brought it back over and they would bring it to me and say, I need to make 10,000 of these. And can you find someone to help me do this? And so I would sit down and find the right manufacturer to do that. But along the way, I created relationships with fabric houses and um, kind of pieces and parts of, of, of different, uh, you know, different things that you would use in product development. And I cr- started a shop called the Cedar Chest in Pahaska, Oklahoma, which is where uh, the Osage reside in Correct. Osage County. And so I started bringing back fabric and uh, fringing and then workhouses and different people that could sew and put things together and brought it back to my community and started really um, bringing goods that they had never been able to have before. And so pretty soon I had workrooms that were around Osage County and here in Tulsa and different places where I had other natives that were working to put together regalia. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're kind of the gatherer for everyone. I was. I am. I kind of <laughs> like to do that, too. I have, I have a penchant for that. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good good problem to have. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. So given to what your experience was and how you started, how did you get into the Native American art 
culture and curating art from various artists and various tribes around the country? Well, you know what? I I would say that everything uh, that I've ever done has always been a stepping stone to something else that I never really saw coming. Mm-hmm. And so um, in 2018, uh, I decided to move from Virginia where I was living and I'd raise my son and he was going off to college and I thought I was going to Santa Fe. So I was going to go out and start talking with galleries and different people, kind of just trying to see what I was going to do out there. And I stopped in Oklahoma for three months to finish up some business that I had. And the minute my feet hit the ground, all this magic started to happen. It felt like home. And well, it always does when I come home. But it was one of those where all of a sudden it was like, hey, I'm, you're in town. Would you like to help us put together this visitor center? Like, we want you to project manage. And I would tell you, rather than being a curator, I'm a project manager. And so really what I'm doing is constantly working on on projects that now have become extremely interesting. And so I continued on from working on putting our visitor center together. There had already been a designer there who had put uh, everything together and it was just a matter of of really making everything come together. And then I ended up um, being asked to Bacon College. I had gone in and they have um, an art collection that's in distress. And so it was really a matter of finding a safe place mm-hmm. And really going in, and uh, I went to my own tribe to ask for certain types of racks where it doesn't collect a lot of dust and moving the thing. And um, so that's <coughs> where I started in trying to help some of the preservation of that collection. That was a two-and-a-half-year project, and really getting to learn about all of the different masters that had come out of, of Bacon. And because um, I was around art that really, you could see the beginning of when it started. Mm-hmm. And these artisans like AC Blue Eagle and Woody Crumbo and Tissoke and, you know, the Kiowa Six and all, all of these different artists started really appearing to me out of these collections. And it was every day was like a treasure hunt. <laughs> really, it was a treasure hunt. And I would open up a box or open up something or lift up and I would see some gorgeous creation that somebody in 1930 or 1940 had had created and kind of their vision of the story that they were telling. And so um, I then started getting um, Gilcrease and Philbrick involved and uh, Crystal Bridges to really help with some of the questions I had about trying to preserve some of these pieces and what we could do. And so um, I really stuck with that, taking fo- photographing the entire collection so that they would have something for, you know, in perpetuity in case it should disintegrate. And I pulled in FAM. Mm-hmm. And so uh, James Pepper Henry from First Americans Museum came in. And I was trying to parlay something where possibly, you know, they're a museum that was looking for a collection. And they were a collection that needed a home. So I ended up bringing James over along with um, a couple of other people to look at this collection and to try to come up with a really good plan or solution for it. And, and even though that never culminated, James then said, well, I understand through the grapevine that you know how to do product development. <laughs> There's so that other door you, that opens up for would you. <laughs> you like to come over to First Americans Museum, and would you look at our gift shop? And you know he had a vision for it. And so um, anyway, I went over to help with that. Um, there was another store manager there at the time, and so she worked on one part of part of the shop. She's no longer there. There's there's several other people now that are fantastic. All of them are fantastic. And um, But I came over really just to use my expertise in product development. And, you know, it was at a time during COVID, you know, everybody's car parts and everything else are stuck in the harbor and it's hard to get. And, <laughs> we're stuck you know, at home. Yeah, and, and their light fixtures aren't coming in either. Right. And, you know, it was all this. But um, we sat down and went through their collection 
and worked with several artists, including um, Jerry Redcorn and Chris Papan, uh, Kenitha Greenwood. And, uh, and then I went through all these different artists, but we produced, um, really we produced product that was a mainstream type of product, but was culturally appropriate to today. And it's the same kind of product that you would find at the Met or at MoMA or one of the big museums with uh, the marketing is put together for them Correct. properly. And, you know, when anytime any of us go on a trip somewhere, you have to put something in your suitcase and you also want a story being told. To exactly. You. And <clears throat> so that's really what I worked on with them, along with working uh, with a lot of really fantastic jewelers and Oklahoma artists because they house 39 nations. And so I was uh, had the opportunity to work with all of these fantastic artists from, from the 39 nations. And, um, and it was an incredible project, too. Do you feel that there's a common thread and tie between those 39? Are they telling the same story or each story is slightly different than the other? Every story is definitely different than the other. The common thread that really pulls all of us together is that this was not original land for any of us that were here. True. And the common thread that we have is since I come from a Plains tribe, and a lot of those Plains, you know, the Ka and the Ponca and mm -hmm. the Cata, I mean, you know, in Quapa, I mean, you start putting all that together, you know, it was a, it was a wider swath that we went through uh, to follow our food. Mm. And so, um, you know, to, to then be landed in one place, that's, you know, the stories that we have with each other about the Oklahoma <laughs> land rush and how we were dealing with that in school and, you know, all those other things. I mean, you really sit down and uh, see the history of how we all have survived here. It's interesting because my tribe is Eastern Woodlands and if you speak to non-natives, and we still have that stereotype, even in Europe and Asia, when they think of Native Americans, indigenous people, people of the Americas, they think of, we're all wearing feather headdresses, mm -hmm. we're all living teepees. And I've even been asked to this day, is there reservations? Do they live in teepees? Right. Um, what do they eat? What do they dress? It's mm -hmm. like, uh, we are in 2022. And right. <laughs> right. It's just a common thread that's continuous to this day. And how do we change it? Is it our responsibility as Native Americans to change that and to promote us as a people, again, where we've been and where we're going, or we just let mainstream market and media kind of uh, promote that for us without telling the proper story? No. Uh, yeah, that's a no with a big N, no. <laughs> but the truth is, you know, I, I, I believe that as our stories are starting to become stronger within the media and we're starting to do our own writing, mm -hmm. um, I just came off working as the head Osage wardrobe consultant for Killers of the Flower Moon. And even though I can't go into that a whole lot, what I can say is I was hired in order to make sure that the research that had been done was authentic mm -hmm. to the story. And a lot of research does go into that, but you can have the wrong research. And so in particular with the costuming part, it is something where you have an industry that's been used to, it's looking at things like on a production like that, how am I going to make this interesting enough to get to the Academy Award? How unusual What's am I going to What's make this? What are right. we going to do to really make people see these people? And I think what has been missed a lot with other costume designers, not the not Jacqueline, who I worked with, Jacqueline West, is that they understand that with uh, the clothing that we have within all of our cultures has a history that has been told down through our clothing. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the conversations that I had early on with several people, and I just spoke with a group about this who were uh, a non-native group, and it was interesting, and in, you think of the history of how our clothing came to 
like the cloth that we use, the elk teeth that someone may have, or the ribbon that is used for ribbon work, or all of the elements that are going into each one of our, each one of our traditional, um, you know, into our traditional clothing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that comes way back from when we were here and people were crossing into our borders and our border patrols were stopping them. Mm-hmm. And they were saying, you know, why are you here in our lands? We need to take you to, you know, either our chief, our council, and we need you to sit down and speak to them about why you're here. In school, they always sit down and talk about peace offerings. Right. <laughs> which is a very sweet way to put that. Yeah. However, it was currency. And the kind of currency that was being given is basically, um, I'm going to use broadcloth as an example, but that was a military cloth that the British used. And within that, there would be stripes on there. And for Osages, we have skirts today that we wear that have different stripes on the bottom of them. They'll be like a, in these like six stripes or four stripes. Well, in the 1700s, that particular cloth in navy and in red was uh, when you were when joined the military, you would bring in your ticket of wherever you were uh, in rank, and you would hand it over to um, the seamstress that was making your uniform. And the tailor would take one look at that, and he would go over to those stripes, and those stripes talked about where you were in your rank. And so if you were a general, you were getting six Stripes. If you were a private, you're getting two stripes. Well, and then he would take that down, and also the cloth is very different. Mm -hmm. Well, you can go back, and I have actually studied this at a research center at Monticello and Thomas Jefferson's home, where Lewis and Clark had thousands of yards of broadcloth to trade as they were going down the Mississippi to cross over into people's borders. And that's part of the currency they paid us. Correct. And yeah. what we were giving in return is basically talking to them once we decided whether they could stay and cross our lands, um, you know, basically things that they should be looking out for mm-hmm. are places within the land that might be dangerous. I mean, there could be bogs. There could be, you know. So it, it was it was a, an exchange of information, but it was not so much a peace offering as it was They didn't sit down and smoke a pipe. <laughs> That's correct. That's exactly right. Um, is there a word for art in uh, Osage language? No. no. The only thing that I can think of is Odaza, which is beauty. Beautiful. Beauty is art. Mm-hmm. It's all transferable and how you look upon it, being the music that we hear. Right. Um, the clothing, obviously, and art and what we have behind us and in this gallery. What are Native American aesthetics? How does... Uh, this figure into your work when you start curating for a project, big or small? I would say the one that I'm working on currently, I really pulled in every medium of art that I could find from old to new. And um, Is this paintable art that you look at? Or is it uh, also beadwork and also pottery? It is sculpture. It It is literally every genre of art. And um, because everybody's always telling a story, right? Correct. Yeah. And so, um, so when I'm looking for uh, certain pieces of artwork, if it's to go into a case, and I currently found um, uh, in a collection, it was uh, it's a bandolier bag by Jay McGirt, who's Muskogee Creek, mm-hmm. uh, and so and he'd also done this really fabulous uh, finger woven belt, and he's no longer here, but these fabulous pieces are here and so i had those shadow boxed up and and really for tribes in general that i really like to push our art has always gone out to people who could afford to buy it which means a lot of times all our art has gotten away to non-native people correct but now that we have places to house art places to appreciate it. We have cultural centers now, a lot of us, and some have museums or they're building them or have plans. We have healthcare centers. We have places where I really feel like we need to start reaching out 
and pulling all of that back in. So some of the mission that I had with this project was that this is one of the first tribes I've worked with where they were able to go out and collect and get back and purchase a back lot a lot of, their, of art. their true masters and artisans. That's fantastic. Do you feel since a lot of that, that we've lost part of ourselves or part of that history or part of that storytelling and also in the educational aspect of teaching youth about the cultural elements in our heritage and creating that art and what it means as a Native American, be it whatever tribe? I would say we're starting to get part of that back. And I do believe um, I sat on our Osage Foundation. And one of the things that our foundation does is to reach out to different entities to promote our culture and also to help fund a lot of what is within our culture. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we have a very strong language program, but, you know, language had gotten down to five fluent speakers. Correct, yeah. And then you look at the Quapaws and you look at Poncas and you look at all these different tribes that are around, and then you see tribes that have completely lost their language. Mm -hmm. And so, and, and, and how can you have a nation without a language, you know? And so, well, that, how can you tell your story? I mean, exactly. Or you can tell a story, but it's never going to be the, it's never going to be in a, that richer sense of, you know, this, and part of this is who we are. Correct. And so, um, you know, and that's always kind of like we're always talking about who we are and what our ways are. Mm -hmm. And um, so, I really do believe that with education is getting better. And I would say, even within food, and farming and seed banks. And I've got, you know, many friends that are really working on trying to get the land as close as we can back to its original state when we were there, um, you know, and, and are really working on collecting seeds. And so I think in our music, and I think more of our music needs to be out there, mm -hmm. you know, but we're really, um, you know, when I go to Phoenix and to the herd in different places, and I think it's... Uh, What's the name of it? It's Yellowtail that's out there, but they have this huge production company that does Native American music, but it's still not in a more mainstream kind of way. Correct. And so I but I think there's a lot of of places in art across the board that really need more cultivation. Do you think in that cultivation will also help distinguish between us being Cherokee or Delaware or Osage or any other tribe instead of just being a homogenous Native American community to the outside world? I think as long as we're creating our narrative for ourselves to the outside world, mm -hmm. you know, and as long as we're taking action, all of us, to do that, then, then the outside world, when you take an action, something reacts around you. And it's up to every one of us to sit down and start creating action if we aren't already. Mm -hmm. And really talking, you know, on the two outside, just like today. Correct. And letting people know the story of really who you are and where you come from. Exactly. Exactly. And I think it's also identifiable that people start saying, instead of, I'm Native American, oh, I'm Cherokee. Yes. And then so on and so forth, you know, I think that's identifying with a specific tribe helps identify it not just as a larger community that you're part of, Correct. so to speak. Um, I have a question about what makes Native American art political? Does or should Native American art have a responsibility to engage political struggle and form content practice and process? You know, honestly, I would put all that up to the artist because that's part of who you are. Mm -hmm. It's their storytelling and, and what they're trying to It's their storytelling and they're conveying something that, you know, they may have seen, you know, something horrible at Standing Rock or, what, you know, or something mm -hmm. that was going on that, um, you know, or a murder or, you know, missing murder in indigenous women. I mean, I think there's all kinds of art around that and there should be. And um, I think any artist has the right to tell whatever story it is. 
whether we agree with that story or not. That's interpretive. You know, I think it's in the eye of the beholder. When they look at art, you get something from it. You're going to get something different than I'm going to get. Correct. And what that story is from the artist is what the response they're trying to get. And it doesn't always have to be so political. It could be historical. It could be about our culture, our heritage. It could be about the mundane, you know, the sunset or sunrise that they see uh, out in the plains. Um, but the political aspect, I think it's because of, of the turmoil that we're in in this day and age that everyone has to make a point or a power or identifiable subject matter where I, it doesn't have to be always translated into art form. I think it comes from the artist, the best way to tell their story. I do too. And I think there's a little too much uh, these days of people feeling like that they have the voice to tell people what is art, what's appropriate to read, mm. you know, what your rights are. I just have this overall sense that as long as we keep going forward, telling our stories, exactly, it doesn't matter what they think. Mm -hmm. It's what it is. The message is from mm -hmm. the artist. Mm -hmm. It shouldn't come from your outside mm -hmm. world, so mm -hmm. to speak, mm -hmm. and being dictated. What responsibilities do you think Native American artists carry in their work and practice that are unique to Native American people altogether? I mean, it kind of goes in the story. It doesn't need to be a message. It doesn't need to be political. Well, it's different for all, it's different, it's different for everybody. Yeah. And so, I guess what I'm really thinking about is some of the studios that I've really visited uh, into practices and kind of the responsibility that everybody mm -hmm. takes, and everybody has their own different ritual, you know. And so, you can, you know, a lot of artisans, fabulous artisans that I deal with, are are doing their art at their kitchen tables and in their homes, you know, weavers and, uh, you know, potters and sculptors, um, you know, and then you can go into studios where, you know, you see different people. But usually at the time that I feel that a lot of the artists that I deal with are being inspired, I have one in particular that I have that is always dreaming stories. Mm -hmm. she's, she's always dreaming stories and it comes out kind of in her, comes out in her sculpture. And so that's really part of a process where she believes that she's being told a story to tell, that that's coming from a greater, a greater place. And then she sits down and starts telling these stories and starts working on this piece of art. And I just think, you know, the zone or the inspiration or whatever anybody wants to call that mm -hmm. is part of that ritual. And the responsibility there is that they're trying to get it to get it right when they're telling it. Correct. And that's what they feel they're being told. Do you think it's a generational thing? Do you think that someone that's 25 that's a creek versus someone that's 25 that's a Osage are kind of formulating almost unique stories or similar stories? No, I would say that they're forming their own unique stories. I really would. We did this project at Osage that our foundation did. And um, it incorporated our drum. And so there's this really fabulous drum maker named Rock Pipe Stem. And he we, he stretches buffalo hide and he mm -hmm. cleans them. I mean, he's he is an artist in himself and he's an instrument. He creates instruments. So I don't consider him any different than the man that invented the Stradivarius, you know, and there's this fabulous violin. And so, he builds his own rims, he soaks and cleans these hides. And so we decided to commission 25 artists who were Osage to take each one of these drums and tell a story on that oh, drum. Fantastic. And it was, and we had young artists that did like pop art on there. We had someone that was a student in IAIA. She told a story about uh, a woman that kept the drum when all the men had gone to World War I. Women don't typically keep the drum, but all the men were gone and she wanted to keep our dance and drum alive. So she tells a story about her and women that had held that drum during wartime. Another one, Anita Fields, basically painted 
an ancestor of hers that she had, you know, with some of her uh, different painting elements that she'll mm -hmm. do on her pottery. Um, Yadika did her son, Yadika Fields, did this really fabulous contemporary where it just looked like all this color was coming out of there. And then there was one where, you know, I'm talking about painting a lot that showed up and it was by June Carpenter. And she had taken, she's a paper cutter. So she had soaked the hide. She had soaked some hide that right. she found and she had cut all of these locusts in this tear flying out of this drum. Oh, wow. And so, and, and the inspiration for all these drums was to paint what you see and hear coming out of there. So it was called Voice from the Drum. And it was like, what do you see or hear? That's a fantastic idea. And so that's what, when we put it out there, that's what everybody came back with. So she had done this paper cutting, and then she's done this gorgeous sculpture of all these that goes on top. So what came out of that project, and, and she was one of the younger artists, but it was true imagination of what you hear right. when you hear a beautiful song being played on that drum. What you envision when you hear the music and the sounds that it actually resonates from it, you know, your vision, if you close your eyes, and they all took it to each sunset. What was it called? It was called Voices from the Drum. It's actually just left... Um, the Osage Museum, and is going to be shown in the First Americans Museum starting in January. Perfect timing. Make sure everyone gets out there and sees it. <laughs> How important is self-representation speaking to and for ourselves in Native American art versus speaking to non-Native American audiences? What role does audience play in your work? Well, <laughs> that's a long-winded question too. <laughs> Sorry I about would that. <laughs> say, um, as far as audience goes, the only the only thing I want the audience to come away with has nothing to do with me. I want artists to be able to tell their story. I want artists to be able to reach different places than they've been to before, which is what I'm doing now with Muskogee Creek. But I really think it's important as far as representation goes that an artist themselves is always being authentic about and true about their story and what they're telling, because it will go a lot farther than trying to tell someone else's story, which I've seen a lot of people, including at Bacon, I saw a lot of that, where people mm -hmm. were trying to find their voice and they were using, and they were young and they're trying to find their voice. But I think as you find that, it just becomes stronger. And that's really what's representing you. Um, and then I think as far as non-Native audiences, um, I think it's really important that when you are showing that that story is really being told in a way that those audiences that are not part of the Native culture are really going to understand it. And sometimes you have to really be very basic about how you're explaining. So some of the questions you and I were talking about earlier, you know, do you live in a teepee? Do right. you, I mean, some of the, what, like, and I kind of consider those to be kind of kitsch kind of questions, yet I definitely have had those, you know, oh. told to me myself or asked of me, or they tell me a story about their Cherokee princess grandmother, <laughs> yes. you know, who's got some, you know, name like, Schmierish or whatever yeah. and i'm like okay yeah and so but you know um i really encourage anyone who's non-native and i actually just spoke to 500 uh women down in uh texas and they had invited me to come and speak and i was speaking on um history of osage clothing and then uh really that kind of clothing is what they were going to see in the movie but i really didn't speak so much about the movie but the truth is when it was over with the questions that I got, which I thought were going to be like, what was it like to work with this person or right, that person? Right. No one asked me that. I had 15 questions and every single one of those was about either blankets that I was showing or um, I was showing, uh, you know, ribbon work and talking about where that ribbon would have come from, the fabric that it was on why we would have been wearing something a certain way, mm -hmm. how many different ways that you could wear a blanket, how many different ways a man could wear a blanket. And it depended on who you were. And when I was done, 
with that discussion, everyone really was only interested in the culture. And that, I would say, is a win. And this was a non-Native American audience? Non-Native audience. Really? Hmm. Interesting. Well, that that, that was a, what do you call it, a grand slam then? Mm-hmm. Do you feel when you do gather and cultivate a curate and exhibit and you're pulling from various artists and various mediums that they work in, are you gearing it toward more the the story, the message, or the audience being a, a native or non-native? I think that I really gather it more towards the story, I would say, um, you know, because a lot of what I deal with, in particular, since I'm dealing with a lot of contemporary artists, you know, leave the artifacts and everything up to the real curators mm-hmm. of museums that have studied anthropology and all of that kind of thing, because mm-hmm. I do not have that background. What I have, really more than I would say curation, is an artistic eye and an appreciation for art and history. Mm-hmm. And so I'm really more interested and think the more interesting aspect of a story for audiences of Native and non-Native looking at art, you know, or walking in and seeing something that inspires them is really the setup of the the story that's being told, you know, around those pieces. Correct, correct. And just like we're looking at these pieces right here behind us and... You know, there's a Woody Crumbo, and here is a Solomon McCombs, and there's a Mopop over here, and a Tissoke. And these were all artisans that would would have been considered to be the masters of, of like, the 1930s and the 1920s and around, you know, that time period. And um, were promoted, you know, not really promoting themselves so much, even though A.C. Boyega was, was, was a master at that. But really being promoted by other people that were non-native that were trying to help us move forward. But in the process of that, we picked up a lot of marketing ways Correct. that we didn't really live by before, you know? Right, right. Mm-hmm. Because you're not seeing the art on Highway 66 no. going from Chicago to LA at an Indian post, you know? Right. And you're picking up your little trinkets and artifacts. Um, now it's a bigger, wider medium to be exposed to do you see in the last 20 years with the infiltration of more artists and growing in the cultures uh expanding themselves and getting more um representation i guess both in the national market but also global market has our time come i think our time has come but you know there's certain there's certain things that we're going to have to do, you know, to continue to keep pushing ourselves forward. And I was just watching, where was I? I was at, I was at a seminar of some kind in Santa Fe and there was a person on stage talking and she was laughing saying, uh, she was talking about Susan Harjo Mm -hmm. and she said, yeah, she said, Suzanne said every 25 years we become popular. So you really got (laughs) to, I think it might've been Jane Meyer that said that, you know, cause she's with prey right now, but it, but anyway, but it was really funny because we all kind of chuckled, but it's kind of been true. Mm -hmm. However, you know, I mean, I would say Ralph Lauren has made a whole lot of money off of, our symbols and our clothing Mm -hmm. and our materials for a very long time. And he's, he has bankrolled every year with something that looks native on the runway every year. So I think it's time for us as we have more of our fashion designers, you know, starting to come into play. Now we're into New York fashion week, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, Dante uh, Bis Grayson has, you know, Sky Eagle collection. He just had his own, uh, show he's well he's had one in london mm-hmm. he's gonna be going to Cannes. he had one in santa fe for two nights um during indian market but he's really traveling around and he's inviting other fashion designers to come along and he also has been up to the new york fashion show mm-hmm. for fashion week and i think that we've got to really keep pushing that rock up the hill because mm-hmm. we have a voice if we want it but we have to keep using it what do you think has changed for that? You know, why is it so revelant, revelant and popular in the current moment? Why now? 
And will it last? Will we be, you know, another five years and then dissipate and then come together and be on the height of the focus in 25 years? I think, um, you know, I really think a lot of it is how we continue to keep using our voice. You know, and I'm kind of laughing, and you said how relevant. I'm like, well, we're still here. Yeah. (laughs) So for as long as we want. (laughs) Exactly. We're still here in our land. (laughs) Um, It just seems because now there's the movie that came out, and Mm -hmm. there's the TV shows, and there's more uh, focus on uh, Native American actors Mm -hmm. and musicians. Um, And now it's kind of infiltrated, you know, all these different medium coming together at one time where – you know, you talk about the 1930s or 40s, it was more about the turquoise jewelry, the moccasins, the blankets, and those type of symbols and, and items that were sold at the corner Indian post, so to speak, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, hopefully it does continue forward and for another 600 years. Well, <laughs> you know, one of the things, though, in the 1930s, I mean, it was really during the Depression, but I think it was um, the WPA, which created work for... Uh, during the Depression, so people would have jobs and could eat. And it was the government that created that. But one of the things that A.C. Eagle did was he went into um, these public workspaces. And what the government did was was basically give money for these artists to have to kind of make work jobs. And they went into post office mm-hmm. all around Oklahoma, but really all across the nation. There were different artisans. They weren't just Native. And so you can go into, like, these little hole in the wall post office and see some spectacular mural if it survived that was a part of that time period and some very famous artists came out at that time and so that's the thing too where i really feel like we were using our voice then we're doing major public works now in a lot of places that's really what i'm working on with muskogee creek but like yadika fields travels running in marathons and basically doing uh, murals all over the world. He's global, mm-hmm. and so I think it's um, I think it's something that we're just continuing to keep that pace up. It's, yeah. And we're doing it. We're doing it. I don't know quite a few uh, artists that are just pushing themselves. You know, they have to get out of their comfort zone as well, um, and make sure if they want to sell, which everybody needs a revenue and everyone needs to eat, but also be their message heard mm-hmm. and their tribe heard and continuing that educational aspect of teaching youth when we have to look back to look forward. And this is what this means and to grow as a community, you know? Right. I wanted to ask a question. It's kind of uh, been on the forefront, you know, on and off for the last couple of years about decolonization. Um, is art making a form of decolonization or Perhaps when an art is decolonizing, are there works, artists, or projects that you see successfully accomplishing this? Boy, that always gets so loaded. With <laughs> decolonization. Uh, so, you know, I find it really interesting. I, I had a museum contact me, and they were wanting to decolonize the museum which I didn't even understand the question because it was like, that's a, that's a white concept, you know? Yeah. Uh. And so when I think about how artists work now and we have to get our, they have to get their art out there, then a lot of times we're taking it to places like Swaya to Indian market and we're taking it to the herd and we're, you know, and we're really, trying there what's happening is is they're trying to find a place where they can put value to that art and climb up an, an artist's ladder mm-hmm. to continue to, to keep moving upward be recognized for their work and Correct. so but at yeah. the same time where that's that is a colonizer kind of Concept. attitude about yeah, it uh, absolutely and so you're looking at it as an object and you're not and you're valuing it as that that level but it's not really the art or the story that they're looking at as much as it is the value of that artist. You know what I'm saying? And so is that going to increase in value in my collection? Is that, you know, it's these kind of questions that don't have anything to do with the art. And I know so many artists that are, 
you know, or the I'm real not, purpose of the I'm art. not going to do markets anymore. You know, I'm going to do this or that or the other. But you really have to be able to have the marketing machine, and you've got to have that in order to get yourself out there and get your name known. Mm-hmm. You know, and so, you know, but at the same time, that's a market and representation value. If I were to turn around and tell you that I saw one of the most spectacular beaded buckskin dresses over the weekend, and she had some finger-woven pieces that her grandmother had put on there, and that that was a museum piece, like this dress belongs at the Smithsonian at NMAI. That is a piece that has nothing to do with value or money or anything to do with colonization. That's a tradition that that artisan at Mm -hmm. her kitchen table was putting together for her granddaughter. And it is a work of art. It's a representation of that art and that artist. And that family story. Yeah. So it's happening. It's just not happening in the way we see it. Correct. In the scope, you know, of the world. Do you think um, Native American communities in general from coast to coast are really doing enough to cultivate their tribal culture and heritage and keep it alive. I know a lot of it has to do with <clears throat> funding. You know, there are a few tribes that are a little more progressive um, and do have a little bit more funds. Um, and there's some that aren't, you know, and it's because of dislocation, uh, economics. But do you feel like the teaching of their culture and heritage is being pushed so it's not lost, just like the language? And just like everything else that all our tribes have gone through. Right. Well, you know, I can really speak more to my own than than anyone else's, even though I've traveled to a lot of tribes. And I would say that really that falls to leadership. It's the leadership of that tribe because that that is who at the very top that chief or that chairman Mm -hmm. when they start looking into deficits within the community of what they've got to fill and i think the more and more that we see each other and what's happening and where we can go and what we can do with this you know the fact that they have language fairs that are just native language fairs now you know and um, that children can go. I would say just, we have an immersion school. Right, right. And so, but I think it's one of those where you have to really, each tribe has to look within to see where their deficits are and then how they're really going to grab hold of that to continue to keep promoting all those areas of their culture. I think it also has to do with, you know, families um, being proud of who you are, not to be a burden. Um, And it goes back to socioeconomic and other factors in today's society that you should be proud of who you are and where your family came from. And you do have a story to tell Mm -hmm. and you do have your own path of success that you can move forward Mm -hmm. and do it in any medium. You can do it in clay. You can do it in paint. You can do it in beading. You can do it in in so many ways to continue that story of your greater community, of your tribe. Mm -hmm. And I think if the families uh, push that as well as the community in general, will help filtrate that into a better path and continued growth for them instead of it being lost forever. Well, and I also think, too, I mean, a lot of times we're always talking about exercising our tribal sovereignty, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, I really find that when we're taking care of those things in our ways and we're pushing that agenda forward of not losing that and making sure that's part of the exercising that sovereignty because, you know, those were things that were pretty much, they were trying to crush or stamp out, you know, right. it was kill the Indian and save the man. And so I hate that. Scene. Here we said, I'm sorry I said it, but it's true. And, you know, and they, you know, did a pretty good job trying it, yeah. even though we uh, we maintained it. And for the tribes that struggle with that, I think they did uh, more of a job on that tribe than they, you know what I'm saying? Correct. You know, Correct. That, it, that it worked. Uh, it, it did its its worst to a, to a lot of tribes that are still, still to this day, we're trying to recover from yeah. that. Yeah, and I think some even have not recovered from it. That's correct. That's no. very, very unfortunate. Um, given the tribal culture, homogenous i I, i'm just trying to think of 
how we don't become homogenous as a tribal culture that we all are identifiable, be it Cherokee, Osage, and others, Hopi, Navajo, Apache, and so many, many more, um, and that we still play a key role in the global art community. How do you see that progressing forward? Really, what I see, even just at Santa Fe this last time, but I see people really telling, telling their own stories. They're really staying within their, uh, I don't want to say confines, but they're really staying within their vision of their culture, how they see it, how they participate in it. And I think that, that, that what I can always tell when I'm walking by a booth, and there's a few people that are telling it, but they don't really tell you so much about their heritage. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, and I'm somebody who, you know, I deal a lot in the contemporary. I would tell you that I'm a contemporary Osage woman. I'm not a traditional Osage woman because I didn't grow up. I grew up in the town, but I wasn't a part of the culture because I was raised by another part of the family. Right. However, everybody in the town knew me. Right. Everybody in the town knew I was Osage. Everybody knew who my dad was. You right. know, it was that kind of thing. And so, but the interesting part about it was is I chose I lived in Washington, D.C., but I chose to come back to it, and I knew I could. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of people out there who don't know how to get back to it, and maybe they had to move away for certain reasons, you know, and they moved off reservation and they go other places. And that's another thing that's very crushing, you know, you have to move away from your culture. So there's a lot of different stories that I see going to markets in different places about how they're telling the art. And you'll hear one traditional person from that tribe say, that's, oh my goodness, that that isn't the way, that isn't what it is, that doesn't look like us, or we would never do that, or that's blah, 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 blah. However, the person's telling that story, that's exactly how they see it. Yeah. That's exactly how they feel in it. It's always, it's truly in the eye of the beholder, but it's also in the hands of the creator. And that's who's created that. I'm so. trying to think of uh, just locale because it uh, goes back to the audience set being native or non-native and also locality of that, where that story needs to be told. Is it because that story needs to be told to them because they don't know or because these artists that you've pulled together want to tell that story? So when I'm pulling something together, I'm not thinking whether it's native or any other culture. What I'm doing is sitting down and pulling. And sometimes I may say, okay, I need something interesting for this location. I might commission that piece from them. And I don't say to the artist, I need this color and I need this or that. I say to them, this is the space it's going into. This is the story I'm telling. It's fitting in to like this genre. Now go do your best. And so they come back. And so far, it's that have, that has never gone wrong. You got a win-win. No, I always get a win-win. <laughs> but the truth is, is as I'm sitting there putting that together, a lot of times I may find a piece of art, just like I happened to come across someone who had these, you know, uh, pieces that were finger woven and you know all of that and mm. i was like oh this needs to go into the story this is you know, this is part of the history this is going to tell and i have perfect places for these but i wasn't imagining them there it was just like oh this is where i can add and so i kind of keep going through and i recently worked with someone who's an older uh, artist jabon dakin and um i needed a piece that was really talking about veterans i needed a veterans piece and so he he said, I have, I think I have the perfect thing in my mind. And so he starts with this piece. And when he brings it in, when it's finished, it's of a true story that happened with a medicine man and his family. Hmm. And they were out on a battlefield. And he starts saying these Creek prayers and these hymns over this. And he was a Creek warrior who was out there, that were a soldier. And that man made it home. And this painting tells that story. But that's the part where I think I couldn't have gone into a gallery like this and said, oh, there's a veteran's painting. Let me let me take this one. Is it a Muskogee Creek artist or is it Osage? Or is it, okay, okay, I'll take this one. 
I couldn't have done that. The truth is that particular painting and that particular artist were supposed to go right where they were supposed to go. And that's how things fit together sometimes mm -hmm. for me. Like a puzzle piece. It is totally. I adore <laughs> puzzles. I love puzzles. <laughs> Do you think the interpretation and translation of the various mediums that Native Americans work with, has there been a change that you've seen in the last five to 10 years? Mm -hmm. Being a curator of exhibits and pulling together and working with multiple artists around the country? Well, I would have to say it's the technology part. Technology changes everything. Right. <laughs> so when you're sitting there and, um, you know, you're looking at a piece of art that, you know, maybe woven all out of hair extensions or it might in this, that's something I just recently saw. And, um, and it was an artist who was seminal, she was seminal, but she, um, was telling a, a story through hair extensions. And then you look at different artists or pottery or, uh, beads mm -hmm. beading. A lot of beading gets told a lot of different ways now. And, um, you know, uh, and stories sometimes that are in caricature form. You know, Ken Kenneth Williams does very traditional, and then occasionally, like, he'll have uh, SpongeBob, you know, beat a <laughs> medallion that he's got hanging off of his Indian shirt that he's beaded, and it's no Love less it. Love it. anything, you know? So, um, you know, but there's a lot of artists out there that are shaking it up uh, with technology. And the other thing that I saw just recently Oh, please, please remember. Uh, there was a, it's a, it was a Muskogee Creek exhibit that was going on. Uh, it was curated by Manuela uh, Well-Offman. <laughs> and these shoes were there that were these traditional Creek moccasins that look like boots. And they were brown. But when you took, you shined a light on them. Mm-hmm from your cell phone. Right. They turned into this silver kind of effervescent looking wow. foil. And they completely changed color in the technology part of that with a cell phone. Interesting. It was fascinating. <sighs> and so anyway, and she was one of the five, she was a granddaughter of one of the five sisters. But I'm telling you, I mean, it was just so futuristic. You know, and that's what I love to see is she's taken something that's very traditional and just like turned it Turn on its house. head. Absolutely. Right. Well, that makes me want to think, is there so much technology? Is it infiltrating the way Native Americans perform and look at their art? Or is there a lot of artists that are still out there that are doing it, I guess you could say, the old school way? There are artists that are still out there that are still doing things the old school way, but I think that's going to be less and less. I do. Mm -hmm. I think there's some art artists that are going to be purists that stay true to the materials they feel are important. And we need to have that because Correct. once again, that's the part of the historic value to us, not monetarily of how our stories get told through art and storytellers. Correct. But at the same time, you see this new, you know, new generations really starting to work with these new things that this part of their life. Right. You Can't know, and no. And I think um, CCA had, had had um, an exhibit uh, that Daniel Means had curated. And there was a Alaskan artist in there, but they had done everything with chips out of our computers. Oh, really? Wow. And they had made this entire bandolier bag out of my, like these chips like motherboard-looking <laughs> chips. and But I would have to tell you, they colored it. They had beads incorporated. I mean, they had right. bone in there. I mean, they had all these different things, but they had a different medium that they were using exactly. wow. uh, to tell that story. So it's just, it's going to be there with us, and I think we need to embrace it all. But I do think that it's very important that we have those artists working in those traditional materials, Correct. always. Always. That we don't lose that doesn't become another factor of something lost forever. Mm -hmm. What's next for Julie O'Keefe? Well, I don't know. Maybe another movie. Oh. <laughs> Love when they say maybe. <laughs> um, you know, and it may be another uh, couple of healthcare facilities, too. Yeah. Yes, I am. 
have been in discussion with a couple of other people about um, about helping them with their artwork. No book? No, and you're the fourth person to ask me right. that. Well, you're a wealth of knowledge and just the amount of people and artisans and craftsmen that you know and work with. I mean, I could see something being a very beautiful binder of the ones that don't have the means and the the f- legwork, I guess, to get their work out there. Mm-hmm. And tell tell the Julia O'Keefe story of what it means to work with all these various artists. Just throwing it out there. Well, thank you for the suggestion. <laughs> Well, this has been lovely, and I appreciate oh, I appreciate been, the interview. Uh, it's been a joy, and I'm so happy that we were able to get you in today. Thank you. Fantastic. Fantastic.